Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so for those who don't know me, my name's Aaron. I'm a longtime member here at Refuge, one of our community group leaders. Um, really thankful once again to be uh, opening God's word with you today. Um, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, 11, and 12. And um, as you are turning to that passage in your Bibles, um, you know, one of the things that, that we need to recognize about our world is that conflict truly is the cultural water in which we swim. It's what gets the most attention. It's what fills the coffers of Facebook. It's what keeps ratings and, more importantly, ad revenue flowing to cable news outlets. Um, and in the war for the, to win the most points, to gain the most attention, to build the biggest platforms, the more incendiary we can be, the better. There's nothing new about this, of course. I mean, just think about, think about where we've been over the past 40, 50 years. Shock jocks, comedians, actors, politicians, they've all played a part in this, in stoking conflict in order to get attention. Careers and personalities rise and fall on conflict. But a question that we need to ask ourselves is, what about in the church? I mean, the church is supposed to be different. The church is meant to be a place that is unlike the rest of the world. It's meant to be a people who are unlike one another in so many ways, of different backgrounds and, and experiences who are all brought together through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which means that the church is meant to be a people with good news to tell in a world that is swimming in a, in a sea of conflict, of sorrow, and of malice. But as we've already seen in the book of James, for those who, who have been here with us over the last few weeks, not even the church is immune to conflict, to division, rivalry, anger. Sadly, none of these are foreign in the church, as we can see right from the very beginning of the church, in fact. I mean, just looking at the New Testament letters, um, entire epistles are devoted to addressing severe conflicts within the local church. I mean, First and Second Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, First Timothy, First John, Second John, Third John, Jude, First and Second Peter, Romans, Revelation, not even Philippians, the one epistle that doesn't address a church-wide conflict still has moments where it speaks to conflict and division among individuals within that church. And then there's James. James, like so many of his peers, offers godly wisdom for addressing conflicts among his readers and hearers. And a couple of weeks back, as we explored James chapter Four, verses 1 through 10, we were asked an important question by the text. Where does conflict come from? Why is there fighting and why are there quarrels among you, James asked. And the answer that he gave is that ultimately, despite whatever surface level causes might exist, whatever problems may come between us, the deeper source of all our conflicts is worldliness. Conflict among Christians is the result of Christians behaving like the world around us despite being, uh, despite being people who are supposed to be different from it. And so in the next two verses of this chapter, James doubles down on this theme as he seeks to challenge his hearers in how to address and resolve 
conflict. And so let's read James 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 together. They say, Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. He who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but it's judge. But there is only one who is, a, who is lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. On the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? And so in this short passage, this is a very, very short passage, but it is a powerful and challenging one for us in this particular moment, as James gives us two charges in how to address and resolve conflict. First, that if we want to resolve conflict between us, we cannot sinfully judge one another. And second, that if we want to resolve conflict between us, we must trust God to be a faithful judge. And so let's look at this, this first point uh, together. If we want to resolve conflict between us, we cannot sinfully judge one another. And so going back to verse 11, do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. So depending on the translation you read, you're likely to see a few different takes on, on this charge. The ESV, for example, says, do not speak evil against one another. The CSB says, don't criticize one another. Um, the, the NET says, don't speak against one another. The NIV says, don't slander one another. And so um, all of these are painting this picture together. Um, that really requires us to ask this question of what does this actually mean? And so what, James, what is James telling us to do, or in this case to not do? Um, because it's tempting to read this charge in whatever translation we prefer and think that what it means is that we should avoid being critical, that we should really only focus on saying things that are nice and polite, um, in being very Canadian, as um, most of my family knows, we like to say nice things, and we have a reputation for being nice. So um, whether we are or not is always a whole other question. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, we take very seriously Jesus' command in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, that we are not to judge um, um, so that we will not be judged. So that's it, right? I mean, that's what James is telling us. No. Not even a little bit. While it might be tempting for us to do so, we should not read James's charge as an endorsement of a wrong application of Jesus' command. When Jesus warned against judgment, he wasn't encouraging us to just be nice. Instead, he was encouraging us to judge with right judgment, to judge according to the same standards by which we would be judged. And James here is doing likewise, echoing the teaching of his brother and Lord. James is talking about sinful judgmentalism, of speaking harshly, critically, and hypocritically about one another. More pointedly, James is warning against slander, of speaking evil of one another, lying and defaming others. And James is not alone in this condemnation of this sort of behavior. Throughout Scripture, we've been warned against the sin of slander and sinful judgmentalism. In this passage, James himself is likely referring to Leviticus 19.16, which says, you must not go about as a slanderer among your people. 
Romans uh, chapter 1, 29 uh, through 31 lists slander among the many practices of those who deny and reject God. In Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus describes it as an act of a heart bent towards sin. Proverbs 12, 22, Psalm 101, 5, Ephesians 4, 31, 1 Peter 2, 1, Colossians 3, 8, and Titus 3, 2 are just a sample of the commands and warnings Scripture offers against slander in both the New and Old Testaments. And yet here we are. Slander, speaking evil against one another, sinful judgmentalism is alive and well among us. So why do we do it? Why do we speak ill, evil against one another? And there's a few different reasons. In some cases, it's simply that we have been duped by someone else. So we've been told a lie about another believer through what we think is a trustworthy or reputable source. And because we trust the source, we perpetuate the lie. And um, as a result, slander a brother and sister in Christ. Sometimes we do this because of a misunderstanding. So we hear or read something, another Christian has said or done, and we interpret it in the worst possible light. Um, but sometimes, and truly, I wish this were far more rare than it is, it's simply because we want to. There's something in us that makes us want to do this. We are intentionally, knowingly choosing to speak evil against a brother or sister in Christ. And we know that what we say is verifiably untrue, but because we want to score points within a particular tribe or one particular tribe or another, or because we simply want people to pay attention to us and we're seeking to make a name for ourselves, we sin against our brothers and sisters. We lie. We slander them verbally, and if it's in text form, whether that's on the internet or in print, we're committing libel, uh, technically. Uh, but whatever, wherever you're doing it, whatever medium, whether it's with your mouth or with your fingers, the result is the same. We defame men and women made in the image of God. We sit in judgment over them, and not only over them, but over God's law itself. As James wrote, he who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you are the judge, you are not a doer of the law, but its judge. And so here James is intentionally drawing us back to themes that are found earlier in the book, where he challenged us to be doers of the law and not only hearers in, in chapter 1, verse 22, and drew our eyes to the summary command of all God's moral laws, to love your neighbor as yourself, in 2.8. Here, he is bringing those together, helping us to see that it is impossible to be a doer of the law and yet sit in judgment over it. Because to obey the law, to, to do the law, to practice the law, is to love your neighbor as yourselves. To seek our neighbor's good and well-being is an expression of our love for God. But to sit in sinful judgment over our neighbors is to violate that law, to reject the great commandments of loving God with all of our being and loving others as an expression of our love for God. What James is telling us is that, we will, uh, is that what we say and do and think about other people, especially about other believers, is a heart issue. 
And whether it's to a person's face, behind their back, or broadcast publicly on social media, when we slander and sinfully judge others, it's because there is something, something in our hearts, something that is holding resentment against them. Or to put it another way, out of, the, out of the mouth, the heart speaks, as Jesus said, and so therefore, out of our fingers, the heart tweets. And in our sinful judgmentalism, uh, the ultimate kind of heart issue that we have here, it, it, it points us to is the oldest one, a desire to be God because we don't trust him. So we take the reins. We set ourselves up as little judges. We usurp his authority when we have no right to. This truly is the oldest problem in humanity. It's been the problem that we've had from the beginning, from the moment in the garden where the first people ate the fruit that they were not meant to eat, when they broke the one command that their gracious God and creator had given them and ruined everything. Our temptation towards sinful judgmentalism is serious, but we can't succumb to that temptation. As Christians, we cannot sin against one another by wrongly judging one another. If we want to resolve conflict between us, we have to reject that kind of thinking. And while we'll get to some deeper application shortly, let's just consider a few a uh, few questions together. So first, where are we tempted to judge others, especially but not exclusively within the church? What are the things that others do or say that make our heads scratch or trigger our discomfort? And what specifically does this reveal about our hearts where we need Jesus' help and healing? And see, th- these are not easy questions for us to ask ourselves, but they are incredibly necessary for us, especially in moments like this, in, time, in cultural times like these, where conflict is what we swim in every moment of every day. None of us will naturally gravitate to this kind of introspection um, that dealing with this kind of sinful behavior requires. For many of us, examining the root of our behavior, examining what's going on in our hearts, it's just too difficult. It's too painful because that self-examination reveals our weaknesses and flaws. But if we believe the gospel, if we believe that Jesus came into this world and died for us while we were at our worst, while we were completely helpless to help ourselves, then there is no need for the guilt and shame that we can feel when those ugly things that are in our hearts are revealed. Because through him, we have hope. Through his spirit, we can change. And by God's grace, we are being changed. And so today, in a little while, when we celebrate communion, remembering the body and and blood of Jesus that have been broken and poured out for us, as we gather with our community groups throughout this week, take some time to talk through those questions together. Take some time to encourage one another to resist and reject the temptation toward sinful judgmentalism that's all around us. And this is what James is pointing us toward as he takes us into verse 12. And our second point, which is that if we want to resolve conflict between us, we must trust God to be a faithful judge. So verse 12 says, But there is only one who is lawgiver and judge 
the one who is able to save and destroy. On the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? James here reminds us that God is the perfect lawgiver. His commands are always right and just because he knows exactly how we are meant to live and and how the world is meant to function because he made it all. Therefore, he is the only one who can perfectly judge according to the standards of the law that he gives. He is the one who is able to save and destroy, not us. That's not our job. And so is it any wonder that James ends this passage with this rhetorical question? On the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? And he asks this question leading us to the, leading us to the answer. We're no one. This isn't, it's not our responsibility. Because if all that James says about God is true, if he is the only one who is lawgiver and judge, if he's the only one able to save and destroy, it means that the job of judgment only belongs to God and God alone. He knows all completely, fully, perfectly. Meanwhile, you and I, at best, we know in part, which means that because we know in part, we're going to err. We're going to get things wrong. We're going to make mistakes and sometimes really, really big ones in our judgment calls. So we must not kid ourselves. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that we have the full story on virtually anything, even when we're sure that we do. And to think otherwise reveals, uh, is nothing short of, of arrogance on our part. And so then, where does this leave us? How should we respond to these heavy words from James today? And the answer is that the only rem- remedy for sinful judgmentalism is humility. And so James calls us in response to humble ourselves. So growing as a gospel culture and fulfilling our mission of making disciples requires us to actually exercise discernment, which means to practice right judgment rather than sinful judgmentalism. So we're not, to, we're not to be judges the way that God is a judge, but we are to practice right judgment. But to do that, that requires humility. And so we must humble ourselves in our personal relationships. So understand, where a professing believer is behaving in a way that is out of step with God's word, whether in their conduct or their character, we absolutely have an obligation to speak to them. If we love people, if we love our brothers and sisters, we can't not do this. But we need to do so wisely and to not simply rush in and hammer people with a Bible verse or to challenge people to just do more better. Um, At at home, we we joke about how when uh, Emily and I were relatively new new Christians, I would often come come into any issue swinging my mighty theological hammer of justice. Um, And so I would just smash problems um, really foolishly. Um, And by God's grace, we've been working on that over the last, you know, 10, 15, 16, 17 years or so. Um, And so we're making some progress. The hammer doesn't come out quite as often, which is probably a good thing. 
I think. Um, otherwise, uh, Dustin would probably be talking to us a lot more often than he does um, about those issues. Um, but having said that, even, um, we, have, we also have an obligation to make sure that what we are speaking about is actually an issue. If we're concerned about our brothers and sisters, if we're concerned about something that we see or hear or um, that seems out of step, we want to make sure that it's actually truly a problem and not just something that is, one of, um, is uh, hitting one of our personal preferences or our convictions or um, a place where simply our upbringing is being challenged. And so there are three really powerful questions that we can ask in those situations. And so the first actually, once again, challenges us to look at ourselves. And it's simply this. Am I being too quick to judge? So we need to ask this sort of question at the start because we have to consider whether or not we're actually, um, uh, we're actually uh, ref- uh, putting our own sins on other people. If we're seeing something in ourselves that we don't like, um, uh, and we're, as, we're, as we're looking at the perceived faults of others. If ever we are tempted toward fault-finding, toward sinful judgmentalism, we need to examine ourselves first. And so we must not ignore James's, uh, Jesus' warning against sinful judgmentalism, that uh, we must not point out the speck in our brother's eye while ignoring the plank in our own. Now, that doesn't mean that we can only speak up about the sins of another if we are completely and entirely sinless ourselves. Were that the case... No one would ever be able to say another word about anything ever in life, and we would have very, very quiet um, times together on Sunday mornings um, as we worship the Lord Jesus. Um, But what it does mean is that when we speak to one another, when, when we come to one another with concerns about our behavior, our words, our conduct, we're doing so with humility, with an awareness that we too are flawed. We too do sin. We too need just as much grace as anyone else from Jesus. So that's the first question, that as we look, uh, as, as we consider whether or not we need to speak to one of our brothers and sisters, that we look at ourselves we consider, and we consider whether or not we are being too quick to judge. Now, the second looks away from us, and it looks toward another. And it's less of a question and more of a statement, but it begins with three words. Help me understand. And so these words are incredibly powerful because they are a way of saying, I perceive something that concerns me, but is my perception correct? And we, need to, and we need to speak in this way to one another, realistically, because it's entirely possible that we can be wrong. We can misunderstand and we can misinterpret the words and actions of others. And so to go to a brother and sister in this posture is to demonstrate humility. It's not an act of judgment. It's a genuine desire to understand and judge rightly. Now, you may find as a result of the conversation that your interpretation actually was right and, there is, and there's a moment to call a brother or sister to repentance. 
but you may also realize that you were wrong. And then there's an opportunity for confession and reconciliation. And in both instances, that's an opportunity for God to be glorified. And so that's the second question when it comes that when we that when we are seeking to address these issues, when we're seeking to resolve conflict, um, that we come to a brother and sister and in humility, we ask him or her to help you understand, to help us understand. And the third and final question is like it. Are you okay? Friends, don't underestimate the power of that three-word question. Because often when people are acting out, even when they're acting out in seriously sinful ways, it may actually be because there's something else that's going on beneath the surface, behind the scenes that we know absolutely nothing about. And in humility, we have the opportunity to be a listening ear, to show compassion and grace to that person in that moment. And that is extremely important uh, for, for us, especially in our desire to be a gospel culture here at Refuge. Because remember, to be a gospel culture means that we are seeking to live in light of what we say and believe about God and the gospel. And that means that we, uh, that we seek to show lots of grace because God shows us immeasurable grace in Jesus. And we give people time to grow and to change because God is the one doing the work, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And we strive to be a safe place, one where, by God's grace, people know that they can be honest about their sins and their struggles, where they know that there is nothing to fear from anyone, because if God is for us, and here's the good news, through Jesus, God is for us. But if God is for us, then no one can be against us. And so as we seek to do away with sinful judgmentalism, we humble ourselves in our personal relationships, um, and we also do it in what we consume. So what we hear and read and watch, especially from professing Christians, shapes so much of who we are and what we become. Songs, books, movies, sermons, every single thing that, we, that is input into us shapes us in some way. And the internet's no exception to this. If anything, because of the internet's prevalence in our daily lives, it actually has an outsized influence on us. And if the last several years have taught us anything, it's that we are exceptionally prone to a lack of discernment about what we consume online. Uh, my, my friend Chris Martin, who uh, he has spent his entire professional life dealing with social media and the Christian faith, um, he, is, he looks at this pretty seriously, and he actually describes uh, the social internet as having made us all gullible. Um, and in that is because we've built our own little worlds led by micro-celebrities um, uh, or influencers, you may hear them called. And many of us will believe absolutely anything that they say. So Chris's words are very strong on this, but they're necessarily so. Because we have to understand that there are bad actors who prey on our willingness to believe uh, what we consume online, especially when it comes from a voice or personality that we trust. And so humbling ourselves in what we consume means to not assume that we have the full picture or even that we're, what we're reading or watching is true 
or accurately presented. For, as Abraham Lincoln famously said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. So we humble ourselves in our personal relationships. We humble ourselves in what we consume. And finally, we humble ourselves before God himself. So to humble ourselves in this way means to trust God, the perfect lawgiver, the only one who is truly capable of judging without error. The one who not only was and is the perfect lawgiver and judge, the, one, the only one able to save and destroy, but the one who experienced the sins James warned about, uh, warns us against in their fullness. Because no one has ever had greater evil unjustly spoken about him than Jesus. Jesus was mocked and ridiculed and defamed. He was declared a blasphemer and even accused of being in league with the devil himself by those who sinfully judged him. And yet, even as he was sinned against, he did not respond in kind because he was God himself who humbled himself by taking on human form, becoming like us in every way. He humbled himself as he endured their judgment and despised their shame and humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in his humility, he did all of this on our behalf to save us from our sin that deserves God's righteous and perfect judgment and to save us from our tendency towards sinful judgmentalism. Friends, if worldliness is our problem, then Jesus is our solution. If behaving like the world when we're supposed to be different from the world is what causes conflict to come between us, then Jesus is the only one who can unite us as one. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, will you come to this Jesus and in humility ask him to save you? Receive this gift of new life that comes from believing that Jesus suffered and died and rose again from you. And so if you're here and that is where you are today, if you've got questions about what all that means or any other questions for that matter, there are people all over this room who would love to talk to you and help you find those answers and to pray with you as well. And for all of us here today who do believe this good news about Jesus, Let's look to him. Let's look to him to give us wisdom in knowing what issues to address and also how to address them, to help us to grow in our humility, to help us to put an end to conflict among us as we reject sinful judgmentalism and we trust God to be a faithful judge. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the perfect lawgiver. Thank you that you are the perfect and righteous judge. Father, we know that we, that we fall short on, in this in so many ways. We know that we are prone to fault-finding and sinful judgmentalism and even slandering brothers and sisters in the Lord. And help us to turn away from those sins, to turn toward Jesus, who is our good and perfect Savior, the one who endured all sin, all shame, all, all evil that was spoken to him and done to him, 
so that we might be welcomed into his family, that we would be renewed and restored through him. God, I pray that you would help us to grow in this area so that we can, we can truly be this kind of community that you've called us to, to be a gospel culture that is so different from what our the rest of our, our community sees so that more people will come to know Jesus as a result. Help us to live humbly with one another, to be honest with ourselves, and to glorify you in, in the process. In Jesus' name, amen.